Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind the headlines. I'm Joanne Freeman. I'm Brian Ballow. And I'm Ed Ayers. I'd like to start the show today by introducing you to a former U.S. Army combat engineer. I'm Buck Clay, and I'm 35. Buck Clay spent 11 years in the Army. He did tours of duty in Kosovo and Iraq. After he left the military in 2011, Clay went to college. Then he got a job helping customers and filling out orders at an electrical supply store in Ohio. That wasn't exactly what he had in mind when he left the military and went back to school. Yeah, that's what a four-year degree gets you these days. <laughs> Clay was bored and dissatisfied with civilian life in general. A lot of the guys that was in the Army with, they were happy. They, like Their whole dream was to go back home and get their house and work their boring job and, and do that type of stuff. And, and to me, that's just, that's just the most boring thing in the world. Like, kind of, it's almost like hell on earth <laughs> to me to to think about being stuck in a mortgage of a job that I hate and acting like that's the big prize, like that's the big achievement in life. Like There's so much more to see, to experience, to, to be part of, to understand. In 2014, Clay became alarmed by the ascendancy of the Islamic State, also known as ISIS or ISIL. It was personal with him. They were moving into Iraq, seizing ground that I helped capture, that I helped Stabilized and secure with friends of mine who, you know, someone got hurt, someone got killed. And, you know, I went through a hell of a lot in three years in that country. They kind of felt like they were taking something from me. Then a news item caught his eye. The Kurds, who were on the front lines in the battle against ISIS, were looking for Western volunteers. So Clay quit his job, sold his car, and bought a plane ticket to Iraq. Seems like you know you're in the same fight, so coming to help. Clay is one of an estimated 200 Americans who have joined the fight against the Islamic State. Many of them have fought alongside the Kurds. In Clay's case, he joined up with a leftist Kurdish militia called the YPG. They met him at the airport at Erbil in the Kurdish region of Iraq. Eventually, they took him across the Iraqi border into Syria. Boy, real cloak and dagger stuff. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you, Brian. Clay knew it was dangerous, but he was willing to take the risk. Ah, you can get hit by a bus, you know. You can die in a million ways. Clay says the Kurdish militia provided food, lodging, and arms, and usually had an English speaker to help out with translations. He ended up with a handful of British, German, and American men. But he was disappointed to learn that combat roles for foreign fighters were pretty limited. He says he felt like he was in that first Captain America movie. Where they're just dragging him around the USO shows and not actually letting them do much. That was what they want to do with foreigners. They want you to get on social media. They want you to pose for pictures. You know, hashtag YPG, hashtag Kurds. Here I am in Syria with my YPG. I believe in this and that. And that's what they wanted from it. They didn't want it to get out into the fight. It's just acting like it's a propaganda tool for the war effort, which, you know, it has its place, but that isn't exactly what I was there for. He also bristled against the YPG's attempts to get him to join the Communist Party. So Clay left Syria after just two and a half months as a volunteer. And overall, he was disillusioned by the experience. So I didn't accomplish anything. I didn't, I didn't really help out too much in my mind. I most certainly didn't achieve my goal. To help out and, you know, help out stop the assault devices as well as push them back if possible. Or if not, do it directly, train people. And I wasn't able to do that with a YPG. But two years ago, Clay found another opportunity to volunteer as a soldier, this time in Ukraine. I just saw, you know, they were getting kind of hosed. I mean, here comes this large country, Russia, who just came in and took part of your country. And the whole world just kind of like, just batted their eyes at it. Didn't nobody help, nobody, nobody cared. I could help out there. I could do something, you know. 
He was glad that he found a way to use his expertise to train Ukrainian soldiers. He stayed for about six months. Clay's now back home in Cincinnati, but his traveling soldier days aren't over. He's saving up money to go back to Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on in the world, and, you know, as long as it, in my opinion, as long as it's only up and up and it doesn't go against U.S. interests, I'm, you know, I'm game to help. Clay is quick to point out that fighting for other countries isn't illegal if those countries aren't U.S. enemies. The U.S. government does discourage people from volunteering, but that won't stop Clay. He really believes that one man can make a difference. I'm not a mercenary. I'm not getting paid to do this. I'm volunteering just because I have the need, the, the will, and you know, the capability to go and help, you know, which in my opinion is greater than retweeting every story that came out of that place, it's going over there and, and being part of it. He says it's like a calling. Buck Clay is the latest in a much longer tradition of Americans fighting other people's wars. Some volunteer soldiers have been motivated by idealism and a hunger for adventure, while others went out of self-interest. So today on the show, we'll revisit some of those earlier episodes. We'll hear about the famous, or infamous, St. Patrick's Brigade that fought on the side of Mexico in the Mexican-American War. We'll also discuss the American men and women who participated in the Spanish Civil War, determined to stop the spread of fascism in Europe. We're all pretty familiar with the American Revolution, or at least I hope we're all pretty familiar (laughs) with the American Revolution, when American colonists fought against the British monarchy. But that wasn't the only revolution in the Americas back then. A series of revolts and revolutions swept across Spanish and Portuguese colonies in Latin America starting around 1810. Spain and Portugal were busy battling Napoleon, who'd invaded both countries and deposed their royal families. So Spain and Portugal's American colonies seized the moment and pressed for their independence. By 1825, the entire Spanish-American mainland had declared independence and secured independence from Spain. Uh, Brazil had secured independence from Portugal. So it's really a dramatic change in the Western Hemisphere. This is historian Caitlin Fitz. She says that at first, North Americans didn't pay much attention to these wars of independence. They were busy fighting their own anti-colonial war with Britain in 1812. But as the Latin American Revolution spread, Americans grew increasingly fascinated by what was happening south of the border. Newspapers from New York to Arkansas kept readers up to date on the latest battles. They also published toasts to their victorious sister republics. I looked at almost 900 July 4th parties, uh, which were transcribed in U.S. newspapers in the weeks after every July 4th. And I found that well over half of them in the decade after the War of 1812 actually included toast to Latin American independence. Wow. Uh, there were also over 200 sets of parents who I found in uh, U.S. census reports who actually named their sons Bolivar or Bolivar, as they uh, variously pronounced it after, of course, Simon Bolivar, the, the, right. this George Washington of South America. Simon Bolivar was the revolutionary general considered the founder of modern Colombia, Venezuela, and Bolivia. Fitz says that the public's fascination with Latin American revolutions and revolutionary leaders was actually based on a misunderstanding. People in the U.S. talked about them as these glorious tropical repeats of 1776. In fact, they're not exactly that, but it Turns out that modesty has never really been one of our great virtues as Americans. And so in applauding Latin American independence, people in the U.S. were simultaneously applauding themselves and what they saw as their own importance in the world. Whether or not they fully understood what was happening, plenty of Americans were eager to join the fight. In the mid to late 1810s and very early 1820s, Over 3,000 people sailed from the U.S. under Latin American flags 
as privateers. And privateers were basically private citizens who sailed on private warships, thus the word privateer. Uh, And those ships had been commissioned by the insurgent governments to attack Spanish and, in some cases, Portuguese ships. So those privateers functioned like an arm of Latin Americans' insurgent navies. And and so there's about 3,000 of them. So privateers, it sounds as if they might have been into it for something other than just sheer patriotism. Yes, absolutely. So uh, privateers got paid if they captured Spanish or Portuguese ships, then they would get Ah. a share of the booty or the prize. And privateering under Latin American flags really surged at the end of the War of 1812, which is when privateers who had been fighting in the War of 1812 ran out of work. (laughs) So there's certainly a financial motive. Um, But there's also, I think, uh, for a lot of them— and ideological motive. Yeah, they have to make a living, but but some of them come out and say, if I can make a living while fighting on behalf of Republican freedom, then all the better. Sure. So, so that's the privateers, but some people signed up maybe for more purely ideological reasons? Yeah, some of them do seem to have made that move. So there were a few hundred more U.S. citizens who enlisted directly in rebel armies and especially in rebel navies from Brazil to Buenos Aires to Colombia. So um, to give just one example, there's uh, a man named James Rogers. He's a a young guy. He's about 24 years old. Uh, He's educated, unmarried, living in New York. Uh, He's from a relatively well-off and well-connected family. His dad's a doctor. So he probably could have lived a reasonably comfortable life in New York, but instead he gets swept away by the news of these independence movements that are igniting Latin America, and he decides that he has to do something about it. So he actually ends up going there. He goes to Brazil in 1824, and the background here is that just a few years before, Brazil had declared independence from Portugal, but Brazil declared independence as a monarchy And in 1824, the Brazilian monarchy kind of veers towards absolutism, and people in the northeastern part of Brazil decided to revolt against it. I see. And James Rogers, this young New Yorker, throws himself into it on the side of the revolutionaries fighting against the real monarchy. Uh, He commands a ship, and he fires on the imperial troops. Uh, He signs a public document that formally expresses support for the rebellion and repudiates the Rio monarchy. Uh, According to his enemies, he also hurls explosives at imperial troops. And at one point, allegedly, he takes a coat that's splattered in blood and gore and he holds it above his head and he shouts to everyone within earshot that the blood on this coat came from dead monarchists or dead Europeans. So he really puts himself out there. Yeah, I'd say. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, It it turns out that he Mm. puts himself out there on the losing side because the revolt collapses within just a few weeks. Uh, Rogers goes to trial, and he's actually found guilty, and he's sentenced to death. And he died before a firing squad in 1825. So— story of James Rogers is certainly not encouraging to other Americans who might go fight. Uh, so I take it this word got back and not too many other people cast their lot with the, the struggles? Yeah. I mean, the public reaction to Rogers's execution was kind of mixed. This is gendered, right? This is also a kind of romanticized vision of American manhood that Rogers has bravely taken up arms to fight for what's right. And so there were people who compared James Rogers to Lafayette as, you know, a foreigner who would fight or or risk his life and, uh, in Rogers's case, give his life for the broader good of humanity. But then others, the skeptics really, like John Quincy Adams, who was the secretary of state for a lot of this time, said essentially that we have to stop this privateering and this armed adventuring and foreign enlistment or these private citizens are going to drag the entire country into a full-blown war or otherwise derail our diplomacy. Uh, so Thomas Jefferson, uh, who himself is you know, an, an ardent supporter of Republican revolutions elsewhere in the world, he himself calls the privateers renegado rovers. <laughs> and so in the late 1810s and very early 1820s, Congress passes a string of neutrality laws and anti-piracy laws that cracked down on privateering and foreign enlistment. 
So does this backlash make Americans disillusioned with these revolutions? Yeah, I think there's a way in which skeptics, including in government, look at these privateers and these armed adventurers and they see a dangerous naivete, a dangerous kind of idealism without really thinking through the challenges that Latin Americans might face or the differences between the United States and Latin America. So when we pull the camera back, Caitlin, what what do we make of this episode in America's history with its neighbors to the South? Well, I think it shows how people in the United States really did want to think that their own revolutionary example really was universal. They had always suspected that it was. I mean, you see Tom Paine talking about that in Common Sense, right? He says this is the cause of mankind. Uh, But for the United States' first few decades, it was this kind of precarious uh, collection of states A lot of people thought it was going to fall apart, and it almost did. And so I think as Latin American independence starts to take off, and as people like James Rogers get so emotionally involved in it that they actually risk their lives and die for it, it shows this desire that people in the United States had to think of themselves as part of a broader cause and to think of themselves as global leaders and and as a global inspiration. Caitlin Fitz is a historian at Northwestern University and author of Our Sister Republics, The United States in an Age of American Revolution. So, Joanne, Brian, I wonder if you could help me get a little perspective on this, you know, when the Americans are going into Latin America to help fight alongside those freedom fighters. uh, They could have looked just a few decades earlier at our own revolution, maybe for examples or for warnings. How would you characterize the involvement of non-Americans in the American Revolution, Joanne? Well, I mean, I would say, um, for one thing, there's involvement of by foreigners on both sides in the American Revolution. So it's worthwhile remembering that the British did hire Hessian mercenaries to come across and fight for them. They were there. Hessians. Hessian soldiers. Um, They were basically rented soldiers from the German state of Hesse Castle. Um, Mm -hmm. And there were uh, as many as 30,000 Hessians fighting alongside the British. That's actually a quarter of the British troops fighting on American soil, which is a huge number. Um, But in addition, on the American side, you had the French. You had the French not just contributing their aid and ships and supplies and funding, but also supplying people who were fighting, people – some of them very famous, like the Marquis de Lafayette, uh, who was a you know aristocrat who came over with a ship and supplies of his own and was really idealistically engaged in the cause. Right. Um, but then you also had people who – Frenchmen who came across and fought for America. But part of the reason why they did so was they really wanted to promote themselves and become an officer. And it was kind of easy to do that in America <laughs> because they knew about things like fighting grand wars against the British. And uh, they came and went to the Continental Congress and said, I want to be an officer. And they were poof, made – officers. Um, So there was a spectrum. Some of it was idealistic and some of it was more sort of personal ambition of sorts. And it does remind you of kind of the global nature of conflict at that time. You know, we tend to think, oh, the American Revolution and then there were the British. But in fact, we were kind of a blip on the radar screen of these larger global conflicts between Great Britain, France, Spain, Portugal, you know, we're just, oh, we, we take ourselves so seriously. If you go back long enough in time, if you go back pre-Civil War, certainly, the United States wasn't a superpower in any way. It was small. It was even for a while, it's survival was, you know, kind of rocky. So, for example, some uh, Americans who went to fight uh, in revolutionary France in like, I don't know, 1793 or 1794, in part, what they felt is that they were there representing America, that they weren't Mm. just there for themselves, but they were there sort of standing up and showing that their nation had a place on the world stage. But you look at the broad expanse of American history. The paradox is, is that back when we weren't really very important in the world, Americans kept finding it within themselves 
the desire, the, the need to go try to help other countries. But later, when the United States becomes a major player in the world, Brian, it seems to me we don't hear many stories about Americans becoming involved in other people's history, say, after World War II. I think the reason is that Americans actually think the state represents them, and there isn't the kind of need to go over and act as individuals. Now, you should be asking me, Ed, (laughs) well, Brian, (laughs) why is that true after the Vietnam War when a majority of Americans felt that our foreign policy really wasn't speaking for most Americans. That's actually a good question, Brian. (laughs) Do you actually have a good answer? (laughs) We have something called the draft for Uh a lot of the period that we're talking about after World War II. And then we have a voluntary army. What better way to volunteer than volunteering for the army? And there's even hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising spent on encouraging people to do in some ways what Lafayette did, but do it in a more formal way by volunteering for the U.S. Army. And the other armed services, of course, Brian. And the other armed services. I don't mean to slight them. I can sing all of their fight songs if you want. (laughs) Well, you think about that advertising campaign for the Army, be an army of one. It's an interesting echo of these kinds of uh, stories that we see. Army of one, be all you can be. All, All of those might have applied to Lafayette and to the Americans who were going around the world before World War II. Exactly. We're going to turn now to a less common kind of volunteer soldier, American troops who fought for a foreign army against the United States. In 1846, the United States declared war on Mexico, basically over the fate of Texas. American Southerners wanted more land for slavery, and Texas was eager to join the United States. The two-year-long Mexican-American War was pretty lopsided. American troops pushed Antonio Lopez de Santa and his army all the way to Mexico City. And once the shooting stopped, the U.S. walked away with nearly half of Mexico's territory. The spoils of war included present-day California, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah, and, of course, Texas. The Mexican-American War nearly doubled the size of the United States, but the war has another distinction. A legendary squadron of U.S. Army deserters ended up fighting against their country. Here's what happened. In 1846, U.S. and Mexican soldiers were positioned on either side of the Rio Grande, waiting for the shooting to start. And it's during this time of boredom that American troops start deserting, um, and the only place they have to go is across the Rio Grande and into Mexico. This is historian Michael Van Wagenen. Mexicans start picking them up, arresting them, and then realizing that they might be a pretty good fighting force if they can organize them together and then induce more of them to join. Which they promptly did, with promises of better pay, officer commissions, and most enticingly, free land. Between 200 and 600 U.S. soldiers switched sides. Eventually, these men were placed into one military unit. They called them the Batallón de San Patricio, the St. Patrick's Battalion. Many of the men in the St. Patrick's Battalion were recent immigrants from Europe who had just enlisted in the U.S. Army. As the name suggests, the battalion was associated with one immigrant group in particular. The largest group of them came from Ireland. Right. Also because their leader, John Riley, uh, was Irish, and he shaped the overall feel of the battalion. Um, and then there's uh, their flag with the Irish harp and shamrocks. Some have it with the, uh, the Mexican snake and eagle. Because of that, it took on that very strong, distinctive uh, Irish uh, identity. So what led these men to leave the American army and go to the other side? Well, uh, there, are, there are many different theories on that. One is as, as foreigners serving in a, a nativist army that they were treated poorly, and so that mm-hmm. would motivate some to leave. Um, a large number of these men were, in fact, Roman Catholics. And this was a time where 
Roman Catholics were not treated well in the United States. And certainly in the armed forces, there was discrimination against them. And some of the justification for their their desertion, um, at least in the minds of some people, was that they were forced to go to Protestant services and not allowed to go to Catholic masses. How much that had to do with their motivation to, to desert is anybody's guess at this point. It, it was probably a factor, there's no doubt. And were they good fighters? Did they matter in the war? Yeah, the 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 reputation of the St. Patrick's Battalion was well known on both sides. They certainly got a lot of respect in Mexico. These colorados, the, these these redheads, uh, were fierce warriors. And Mexico had not formed a really cohesive national identity yet. As a result of that, when Santa Ana is trying to inspire his uh, forced conscripts, and many of his troops were, in fact, uh, conscripted out of indigenous villages at gunpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard to instill in these people a sense of loyalty to Santa Ana or to this federal Mexican state. This allowed the St. Patrick's Battalion to stand out because an American soldier who deserted during combat, during wartime, could expect to face execution. As a result of that, they don't surrender. And there are accounts in battles where uh, Mexican soldiers are raising up the white flag of surrender and the St. Patrick's Battalion soldiers are shooting them. Uh, they don't want to surrender. And so um, that's that's part of the reason that they're really standing out is they have a, a much larger motivation uh, for victory than even Mexican soldiers did. Did the Americans just detest as well as fear <laughs> the St. Patrick's Battalion? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, one of the, the major battles that uh, they fought against the Americans in, and inflicted terrible casualties on U.S. troops was at the Battle of Monterey in northern, well, modern-day northern Mexico. And um, the battle ended somewhat as a negotiated truce. Uh, The Mexicans agreed that they would leave the city, and the Americans agreed that they would allow them to go peacefully. And um, accounts of the retreat of the Mexican forces out of the city record Americans recognizing them and start jeering and yelling at them and making threats at them. So, you know, right from the onset, they're recognized recognized as traitors. And uh, much of the literature and and the many books that were written about the war in the late 1840s and early 1850s recount the treason of these uh, St. Patrick uh, deserters. Well, I don't want to ruin this story for anybody who doesn't know, but the United States manages to win this war uh, after only two years. What happened to St. Patrick's Battalion then? By the summer of 1847, the United States had conquered the northern parts of Mexico and had moved down around the Valley of Mexico and into Mexico City. And um, the numbers of the battalion had been reduced down to probably 200. So they were at their low point at this time. Mm -hmm. And they fought at a battle called uh, Churubusco, which was at a convent outside of Mexico City. The main disadvantage is that Santa Ana did not give them the sufficient munitions to maintain any sort of lengthy fight with the Americans. And much of the ammunition that he sent to them didn't even fit their guns. So they were really in a terrible spot. Mexican battle accounts list 35 of the San Patricios were killed. 85 escaped, and 85 were taken prisoner. 22 of them were able to prove that they had deserted from the U.S. Army previous to the outbreak of the war. And as a result of that, they were not executed. Uh, Instead, they were lashed 50 times and branded with the letter D on their uh, faces. Wow. That was the lenient punishment. Wow. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So what happened to the rest of them? For 50 of those men, the, the sentence was death. And uh, two were given the firing squad and going against all conventions of the U.S. military. The other uh, 48 deserters were actually hanged as opposed to shot. Um, and very dramatically, the first group of 18 was hanged publicly. And then the last group of 30, uh, in a very dramatic affair, they were lined up on gallows altogether facing the mountain of Chapultepec on the 
on the outskirts of the city. And that was where the last battle was fought that allowed the United States entry into the capital. And so the men were standing on the back of wagons with nooses around their necks, facing this castle on top of Chapultepec, so that the last image that they would see was the American flag going up over that castle and knowing that all their fighting was for nothing. But the San Patricios, rather than being demoralized by this, began, as a group, began to taunt their executioners um, as the, the battle wound down and the flag went up, and ultimately they were hanged. So I understand that uh, this battalion has had quite the image makeover over the years. How did that happen? Throughout the rest of the 19th century, you know, any literature you found in the United States, of course, vilified these, you know, these deserters, these traitors. And in Mexico, they're very clearly heroes. Um, but in the United States, they've gone through huge rehabilitation. Uh, I think a lot of that comes to sort of this resurgence of Irish ethnic pride in the uh, latter part of the 20th century. Um, and these guys are recast as freedom fighters, and especially with very strong religious overtones. These were men that were fighting for Roman Catholicism. These were men that were fighting for Ireland. These were men that were ultimately fighting for the underdog. And it's a compelling narrative. We like that in America. But when they were given their um, court-martials, most of the battalion survivors actually claimed that they were either drunk or coerced into the ranks of the Mexican army. Now, that clearly is a way to try and save their own lives. I mean, this was highly unlikely that all these men came over drunk. And so this leaves this sort of gray area. So that allows their memory to to be sort of formed and, and twisted and evolved in many different ways. So what is the truth about the St. Patrick's Battalion? Well, we know a bunch of European fought in Mexico after having lived in the United States for a while, and they died in combat or were executed as traitors. Beyond that, you know, everyone can have their own interpretation of it, and certainly it seems that everybody does. Michael Van Wagenen is a historian at Georgia Southern University. He's the author of Remembering the Forgotten War, The Enduring Legacies of the U.S.-Mexican War. In the early 20th century, black Southerners were growing increasingly restless. Failing crops and the oppression of Jim Crow provoked a steady exodus from the South, known as the Great Migration. Starting around 1910, more than one and a half million African Americans packed up and moved to cities such as New York, Chicago, and Cleveland in search of better jobs and better lives. But instead of going north, a small number of blacks crossed the Atlantic to Europe. One of them was a Georgia teenager named Eugene Bullard. Fed up with the racism of the South, Bullard ran away from home in 1912 and stowed away on a ship headed for Scotland. Former Backstory producer Chioki Ianson tells us what Bullard found when he got there. Eugene Bullard was surprised when he first set foot on land. He recalled in his memoir that he encountered something largely unfamiliar up to that point in his life. Everyone I saw smiled and looked at me pleasantly and spoke politely. Some even called me darky, but in such a way that I realized they did not mean to hurt my feelings. The people would shake hands with me and invite me to tea. Just imagine how a colored kid from Georgia felt in a country where everyone, and they were white too, would treat him just like one of their own. The young Bullard was not the only black American to learn just how different things were in Europe. In London, he stumbled upon the Negro Quarter, a community of expats, mostly entertainers. They had come to Europe to perform, but they stayed because of the warm reception. Bullard joined this community. He took up prize fighting alongside boxing legends like the Dixie Kid and Jack Johnson. Just months after making landfall, the stowaway from Georgia was already making a name for himself. In the summer of 1914, the Germans began their march on France. Bullard was in Paris at the time, and he wanted to fight, so he enlisted with the French Foreign Legion. He got into the French Air Force as a machine gunner. Soon after, he was given his wings, becoming the first black American fighter pilot in history. 
It seemed to me that by midnight that same day, every American in Paris knew that an American Negro by the name of Eugene Bullard, born in Georgia, had obtained a military pilot's license. When the Americans entered the war in 1917, Bullard applied to fly with the United States Air Service. He passed the physical, but he never received orders to transfer. I was more and more puzzled until suddenly it came to me that all my fellow countrymen who transferred were white. Later, I learned that in World War I, Negroes were not accepted as flyers by the United States Army. This hurt me deeply. Bullard was able to fly alongside whites in France, but the country was a far cry from racial utopia. French Africans in the 20s condemned France for racist colonial policies like forced labor. But the French didn't see black Americans the way they saw their own colonial subjects. Most French people decried American segregation and prided themselves on their tolerance toward African Americans. Some even defended blacks against attacks from visiting white Southerners. This era of acceptance persisted after the war, when Bullard became a jazz drummer and opened a nightclub in the Momar district. While Southern migrants to Chicago dealt with the fallout from race riots, black expats were enjoying the nightlife in Bullard's club, alongside Louis Armstrong, Ernest Hemingway, and Josephine Baker. By the late 30s, Paris nightlife was dying down. A new threat of war loomed. In 1940, the Germans invaded once again. Once again, Bullard enlisted and fought for France. He was wounded in combat and retreated to Spain, where he got on the first ship he could board. It was headed to America. After being gone for decades, he was going back to his home country. Back in the States, Bullard couldn't recover any of what he owned in Paris. Poor and largely unknown, he took up work as a perfume salesman and an elevator operator. Eugene Jacques Bullard spent his remaining years in Harlem. He died of stomach cancer in 1961. He was buried in his uniform by members of the Legion. A news report spoke of the death of the French war hero. To this day, his gravesite in Queens is maintained by the Federation of French War Veterans. At the end of his life, he reflected on what inspired him to stow away so many years before. It was to find equal treatment, to find freedom, that I struggled so long and hard to get across the ocean to France. It was to defend the freedom of our allies that I fought in two bloody wars. Never have I gone against my principles about freedom for each decent person and freedom for democratic nations. Any contempt shown to a fellow human being just because of his race, creed, or color, I consider a sickness. Bullard also wrote that despite all the barriers he had faced, he continued to love America, his home country. But it was France that loved him back. That was former Backstory producer Chioki Ianson. Special thanks on that story to Craig Lloyd. He's Professor Emeritus at Columbus State University and author of Eugene Bullard, Black Expatriate in Jazz Age Paris. In the 1930s, several thousand Americans went to Europe to fight in another country's civil war. They went because they felt they had no choice. Fascism was definitely on the rise. This is writer Adam Hochschild. The, the French writer André Malraux said, fascism has spread its great black wings over Europe. Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini had already seized power in Germany and Italy. Then, in 1936, a tough-talking general named Francisco Franco led a military coup against the democratically elected government of Spain. Franco had a picture of Hitler on his desk. He spoke of Germany as a model we must always keep before us and, in the space of about 10 days, seized roughly a third of the country. 
And within those first 10 days, Hitler and Mussolini both began sending help, military advisors, arms, ammunition, aircraft, tanks, and from Italy, actually, uh, eventually 80,000 ground troops. The United States government refused to send the Spanish government weapons or other assistance because it was determined to avoid another world war. The only country willing to supply the Spanish government with arms was Stalin's Soviet Union. But American citizens were a different story. Roughly 2,800 men and women participated in the Spanish Civil War. They served as soldiers, nurses, and ambulance drivers alongside volunteers from France, England, and Canada. One American volunteer was a student from Swarthmore College named Joe Seligman. One day in December 1936, his mother in Louisville uh, telephoned him at Swarthmore and was startled to be told that uh, her son wasn't there and he had disappeared a week earlier. A few days later, she received a letter from him that he had uh, asked a friend to uh, hold onto for a week and then mail, uh, saying, I'm going to Spain. Uh, I can't do otherwise when we're facing a crisis like this. Hmm. And so the the Spanish uh, Republic put him in a battalion of British volunteers, and he wrote home to his parents, joking that he was learning to speak Spanish and to speak British also. Hmm. Uh, And he was fatally wounded uh, the first day that that battalion was sent into combat. And this was the story with many of the volunteers because this time militarily was a desperate moment in the war. Franco and the nationalists had almost completely surrounded Madrid. And uh, the international volunteers were thrown into the battle for the city with very little training, uh, very poorly armed. One batch of Americans arrived at the front still wearing civilian clothes and Ked sneakers. Uh, There wasn't enough equipment to go around. So the casualties, especially in those early weeks and months, were, were just horrific. Adam, it's really amazing that one out of four of the American volunteers was killed or wounded. That's a much higher casualty rate in either world war. Tell me about some of the other volunteers. Well, here are a couple who were particularly interesting to me. One was a poet named James Nugas, came from a wealthy family in New Orleans. A grandfather had been president of the New Orleans Stock Exchange, went to Spain as an ambulance driver, served there through really what was the some of the worst four or five months of the war, uh, finally ended up with what today we would call post-traumatic stress syndrome and mm-hmm. uh, was invalided home to the United States after having been wounded. Remarkably, Nugas kept a diary during the war. And he writes very movingly at one point about finding himself... Uh, sharing not just a room but a bed because there weren't enough beds to go around with a fellow fellow medical volunteer who was black and imagining the faces of his ancestors looking down with horror on this scene. And he wrote, For a century, my family has had its laundry done by Negroes and its cooking. Negro women have taken care of the men's overflow sexual desires and the children they had with their wives. This was the first time I had shared a room, much less a bed, with a Negro. My grandfather had been a slaveholder. Two ancestors had fought with the Confederates. The eyes of three generations of New Orleans private bankers and their women were on me as I stood in the room with Dr. Danawa. He sensed this but made no comment. Wow. Here's another entry from Nugas's diary where he's describing how he'd been driving his ambulance for a day and a night, being shelled all the time. He was absolutely exhausted. And at that point, the operating rooms of his mobile medical unit were being sheltered from uh, bombing in a large cave. And he writes in his diary, crawled into the deepest end of the post cave to a stiff bloodstained stretcher with relief I observed by the light of a candle stuck into the clay cave wall that both men in the stretchers alongside of me were dead. If they were alive, they would have been making too much noise. So, fairly grim. Can I tell you about one other character? Yes, please do. 
Lois Orr uh, was 19 years old. She came from Louisville, Kentucky, and she was in Europe on her honeymoon when the Spanish Civil War broke out. She had, a couple months before, married uh, Charles Orr, who was about 10 years older than she, and an economics instructor at the University of Louisville, where she had been a sophomore. They were both very political, but independently-minded leftists, uh, not at all pro-Soviet. They hitchhiked to the Spanish border, crossed the border, uh, only two months after the war began, spent the next 10 months living and working in Barcelona, which was the up epicenter of this revolutionary upheaval. And during that time, Lois Orr wrote home the most extraordinary series of letters to her family back in Kentucky, describing what it was like. Uh, here's Lois writing about talking with other foreign volunteers. Uh, those all-night sessions at the Café Ramblas, Lois wrote, were my first initiation into the political realities of Europe's concentration camp universe. And she's saying that because many of the political uh, refugees who came there were from Germany and Italy. So they were both coming to take part in something they felt positive in Spain, but fleeing imprisonment in their own country. So what was the response back in the United States to these efforts of the, these young people? It seems that they've been, partly because of the writings of Ernest Hemingway and others, they have been seen as heroes basically from the time they were there to the present day. Is that right? Well, I think they're seen as heroes today. They certainly weren't seen that way by a lot of people when they came back to the United States because— oh. When the Soviet Union became the Spanish Republic's principal arms supplier, they instructed communist parties around the world to begin uh, recruiting volunteers to fight in Spain. So of those 2,800 Americans who went to Spain, uh, most, though by no means all of them, were members or supporters of the Communist Party or its affiliated organizations. But not all of them, because you didn't have to be a communist to want to fight against what seemed to be another uh, fascist country in the making in Spain. Uh, this was an era when J. Edgar Hoover was director of the FBI, and he always thought his real goal in life was to suppress the left and uh, not to go after organized crime or anything like that. So he was very tough on these people. They hadn't actually violated any American law by going to Spain, but nonetheless, many of them lost their passports the moment they got off the ships in New York. And for decades afterwards, the FBI relentlessly would send agents to question these returned volunteers, and if they could find out where returned volunteers were employed, they would once or twice a year send a pair of FBI agents to talk to this person's employer and wow. say, you know, are you aware that you are employing somebody who once served in a communist army? Like many volunteers, James Nugas worried about FBI harassment, and we can actually look at historical FBI files, you know, their reports on Nugas after he got, came home. Right. He never told his own children uh, that he'd been in Spain when there was a scar from his wound. He told his son, oh, that was from a skiing accident, and so on. So uh, these folks endured a lot of harassment. So Adam, what led you into this subject? Well, I felt a personal connection to it because I knew half a dozen of the American volunteers who'd been in Spain. Uh, the first two I met were fellow newspaper reporters of mine at the San Francisco Chronicle where I started off as a cub reporter in the 1960s. And when times were slow in the newsroom, things were quiet, I would sometimes ask them about their experiences. I also, for decades, have been an enormous admirer of George Orwell's memoir, Homage to Catalonia, about his time as a volunteer in the Spanish Civil War. And I was fascinated to find that two of the characters I picked to write about, Lois and Charles Orr, actually knew Orwell in Spain. Also, when I write history and when I read history, and I think this is true of all of us who, who are interested in history, we always wonder, what would I have done in that time, you know, 
Would I have volunteered to fight in Spain? I hope I would have been brave enough to do so. Would I have done so if I had known what the casualty rate was going to be uh, and also what the absolutely miserable conditions were under which these people lived, you know, eating dried mule meat and not having sufficient clothing against uh, winter snow and all this sort of stuff. I don't know, but one of the nice things about writing history as opposed to actually living history is that you can imagine yourself into these various situations without having to actually endure all the hardships. A brief postscript. General Francisco Franco ruled Spain from 1939 until his death in 1975. We just heard from Adam Hochschild, who's the author of Spain in Our Hearts, Americans in the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 1939. That's going to do it for today. But you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your burning history questions. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And feel free to review the new show in the iTunes store. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddock, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Robin Blue, Emma Gregg, Sequoia Carrillo, Anjali Bishosh, Courtney Spagna, and Aaron Teeling. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Pottington Bear, Ketza, and Jazar. Special thanks this week to Chioki Iansen. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.